doesn't it, depending on the circumstances? Impossibility. Webster's defines it as hopeless, incapable of occurring, insuperably difficult. The world, beloved, is full of impossibilities. I have no doubt in an assembly this size that many of us could, in fact, share some things that are impossible for us. For example, for some of us, losing weight is impossible. For some of us, making yourself taller would be impossible. Unless you wear boots to Sunday service, where do you go? Did he leave? Oh. Jim Love can't tell a joke. That's impossible. <laughs> There's no way I can preach a ten-minute sermon. That's impossible. There are some more serious things, though. I don't think I will ever forget... When we took my daddy to a hospital and the doctor came out and said, no hope. No possible. No possible hope. Maybe you've said things like this or your loved ones have said them. This marriage will never work. Not after what you've done. I can't forgive her, not after what she's done. How could God forgive me after all I've done? That's impossible. I, I, God just can't forgive me. I can't seem to stop sinning. It's impossible. There is no way that I will ever, ever love Him again. Or, or maybe it's a practical thing like... There are more bills than there are money to pay. Or maybe more to do than there is time available. And it's just impossible. Have any of you ever said anything like that? Maybe some of you are saying it even now. What I would share with you is that the word impossible really is a matter of perspective. It's a matter of whose eyes you're looking through when you look at the circumstances that you are calling impossible. For example, I could say to uh, Tarana, let's go out this afternoon and you kick a 40-yard field goal. And Tarana would say, that's impossible. But to me, that's not impossible. Yes, even at 38, Frank, it's, it's still possible. I, I could say to uh, George, come on up here and, and play Beethoven's Fifth for us. And George would probably say, well, that's impossible. But that's not impossible for Kathy. Where did she go? 
I did that to her in the first service and caught her off guard, I guess. She's not going to stick around for the second. I trust you see the point. Impossibility really is a matter of perspective. It's a matter of whose eyes you're looking through when you look at the circumstances you're facing. Because the truth is, and this is a truth that you and I need to own, beloved, is that there is someone else out there who doesn't even know the meaning of the word. To him there is no such thing as impossible. He knows every ounce of hurt. He knows every twinge of guilt. He knows every wave of hopelessness that's in us as we view our circumstances. But there's no such thing as impossible with him. In fact, I would share with you that the only reason God uses the word is impossible is so he can refute it. Listen to what God says about this word impossible in Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah said, Ah, Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by thy great power, and there is nothing too difficult for thee. What's the circumstances? Well, the circumstances are very simple. God put an impossible circumstance on Jeremiah. He says, Jeremiah, I want you to go buy some land. Buy a field. Jeremiah says, Well, God, nothing's too difficult for you. But that's going to be a little hard for me. Because you see, the Chaldeans have come in and they've conquered our land. And you can't buy and sell anything. So even though there's no problem for you, that's a major big time problem for me. God answers in verse 27. Oh, Jeremiah. I am the Lord. Is anything too difficult for me? Jeremiah, I'm going to bring your people back to the land and I'm going to kick the Chaldeans out and there will again be the buying and selling of fields in Israel. In other words, Jeremiah, I called you to do something, but hey man, it's not on you. You aren't up to the demand. It's on me. And I'll do it. That's awesome. I think of in Luke chapter 1, in verse 37, you know the passage, that's where a young woman named Mary, who's a virgin, is found with a child. And Mary is astounded as the angel gives her the announcement. The angel quickly adds, oh, oh, by the way, Mary, that's not all. You know your cousin Elizabeth, who's kind of beyond the years of bearing children? Uh, she's got a little boy in her womb, too. And what's Mary's response? Hey, how, how can this be? And what's the angel say? With God, nothing is impossible. You and I need to know that. Because every single day of our lives, we have the potential for an impossible circumstance to invade us. And with our limited perspective and our limited resources, as we look at that circumstance that comes our way, if that's all we have is our perspective and our resources, we'll quit. We'll give up. 
I got a phone call, well, a letter this week from a friend of mine up in Delaware and one of the kids that I used to coach in football, 17 years old, committed suicide. Just gave up. And there are a lot of Christians, there are a lot of believers that, that commit spiritual suicide. They just give up. And they leave their faith. Lost? No, once you're his, you're his, but, but they just can't cope. And they give up. They quit. And you and I desperately need to know that there is someone out there who says there is no such thing as impossible. We need to know that there is a God who is omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. There's a God who knows everything, can do anything, and is everywhere all the time. You and I need to know that. Right? But don't stop there. If you and I stop there, all that has become is a doctrine. All that that has become is something you can put in your head and spit out in a Sunday school class to impress people. God is omnipotent, Matthew 19. God is omniscient, Psalm 139. God is omnipresent, Psalm 139. Isn't that wonderful? That is not wonderful news unless all that He is, He is to us. And that is the marvelous truth that you and I must add to that first truth. Yes, God is omnipotent. He can do anything. But all that He is, He is to me. Therefore, I face no impossible circumstance. Yes, God is omnipresent. It's a wonderful truth, but He's omnipresent to me. I'm never alone. I never face a circumstance by myself. And yes, God is omniscient. Wonderful truth. But He is omniscient to me. He knows how this started. He knows how it will end. And He knows how He will bring me out of it. When Paul understood that truth, when he wrote his crowning eighth chapter of the book of Romans, i got to believe as the Holy Spirit was working through him, he shouted. He shouted, I believe, when he hit verse 32. You know the verse? If God be for us, what? Who can be against us? And then he went on to elaborate and climb that mountain of praise. There's famine, tribulation, fire, sword, nothing separates us from God. And that's the basis for verse 28. All things work together for good. Oh, don't ever, please. I, I get so angry sometimes when you deal with hurting people who have had these Christians come to them and give them that glib Romans 8.28. Just lost a baby. Well, brother, all things work together for good. Wife dying. All things work together for good. Don't ever do that. Don't ever share the glory of Romans 8.28 without its foundation. That we have a God who can do anything, who knows all things, and who is everywhere, and all that He is, He is to us. And therefore, this tribulation is not worthy to be counted with the glory because it will work for my good. Don't ever share the verse without the foundation. Otherwise, that is just, just glib, glib cliché.
Our God is available to us and He is available with all that He is so that you and I do not really face impossible circumstances. That is the lesson that Jesus' disciples are about to learn through a very unique set of circumstances. Only there's one truth, beloved, that you and I have got to see. And this is what he's going to teach them. For him to be the solution to their impossible circumstances, all other supposed solutions must be stripped away. Did you hear that? If Jesus does not strip away all other supposed solutions, you and I will look to them instead of him. So what he is going to do is he is going to methodically empty his disciples. He's going to take it to them and just strip them. So that in the end, they're still faced with this insurmountable circumstance, but they're not going to have any resources left. Now, what do you suppose they're going to do about that time? Master, can can you handle this? And he will. And he did. But sadly, this has to happen first. I will put it this way. Jesus is going to empty them so that then he can fill them with himself. He's going to strip them so that then he can clothe them with himself. This is so simple that, to be honest with you, I hesitate to share it. And yet at the same time, it is so profound, if I don't share it, I would be a fool. The only vessel that God can fill is an empty one. Do you realize that? Let the the profound simplicity of that just sort of bathe your heart and your mind for a minute. The only vessel that God can fill is an empty one. We talk so much about filling. But God cannot fill half a cup. That's only a half-filled cup. God cannot fill a quarter-filled cup. That's only a, a quarter full of God. The only vessel that God can fill is an empty one. And that is what the disciples are going to learn. And I pray that's what we're going to learn. So that when we go out into this world, they see Jesus in us and we are the living epistles of Christ. You see, really that's the bottom line. If you go to the people in this world with your own resources, you go giving them your resources. What have you given them? First of all, something that's inadequate. But secondly, you've given them yourself and you can't be with them 24 hours a day. I can't be with you 24 hours a day. I won't even try. But what I can do is I can do, and you can do, Peter's words in the book of Acts, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I'll give you. And what I have to give you is Jesus. That's it. So my prayer as we go through this study is that Jesus will fill us with himself so that we will have Jesus to give. Because really, if we don't give Jesus, we don't give anything that's really worth any value at all. Why don't we pray towards that end? Our Father, thank you for this word. 
This is such an incredible, incredible truth that we're going to be looking at. May it leap off the page and into our heart. And may it bring about a transformation of us, Father, that can only be accomplished by your Spirit. So that the men and women in this world will recognize that, yes, there is the presence of God within these people. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 6? We've been moving very rapidly through the Gospel of John. Uh, rapidly for us, anyway. In the first chapter, how many did we took one day, right? Remember that? John chapter 1 in one day. Chapter 2, we did in two days. Chapter 3, we did in three days. Chapter 4 took about four or five days. And chapter 5, of course, took a long time. You notice what's happening. It's going to happen worse in chapter 6, I can guarantee you. And that's by design. To be honest with you, I've only been in the ministry about 12 years. But I have never, ever, in all the study, had a passage so impact me, personally, in my walk with Christ, as John chapter 6. And we're going to put it in first gear. And to be honest with you, I don't care how long it takes to go through this chapter. Why? Well, if you notice John chapter 6, verse 1, People are following him because of his miracles. Jesus, seeing this company in verse 5, says, we've got to feed these people. Philip in verse 7 says, we don't have enough money. Andrew in verse 8 says, we don't have enough resources. Jesus takes over in verse 10 and says, sit the men down. 5,000 men. He then takes the loaves, gives thanks, and distributes, and every one of them is fed to the full. They gather up the fragments that remain, and there's twelve baskets full for the twelve disciples. And when it's all done, it says in verse 14 that when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, they said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. He feeds five thousand men. And in all honesty, there are probably families here. So there are wives and children. The crowd could be anywhere from 15 to 40,000 people. On a few loaves and a couple little sardines. We are dealing here with a miracle. Only this is not dunamis. This is not a demonstration of power. So that everybody can sit there and say, Wow, what a guy. That's not it. This is not even, I looked in some old notes from a sermon I preached on this years ago, and the notes said Jesus was manifesting his deity. That's what dunamis produces. People look and they say, wow, he's different. That is not John 6. This is again one of those key words that we use in John, the semeon, the sign. In other words, don't just look at the miracle. Look at the meaning behind it. 
See, beyond the demonstration of power to the principle, to the truth that is there, and you will find life like you've never found it before. Don't sit on the surface. Dig. That's the intent. And I'll tell you what, beloved, if ever there's a chapter where you and I have got to dig, it's this. Why? Because this is the only miracle that is repeated in all four Gospels. Did you hear that? Out of all the miracles, the healing of of the paralytics, the, the casting out of demons, the raising of the dead, all of the miracles, this is the only one in all four Gospels. What does that instantly tell you? Why did the Holy Spirit do this? Because there is something going on here that you and I need to see that is beyond dunamis. There's on here. There's a sign. And I'll tell you what. John is the only one that records the sermon that follows. Matthew records the miracle. Mark records the miracle. Luke records the miracle. But John records the miracle and then he carries it on and he tells us the sermon that followed where Jesus Himself gives us the meaning of the miracle. We are going to have an absolutely incredible time. And I trust you'll see Jesus in a way that maybe you've never seen Him before. Well, let's pick it up in verse 1. After these things, the circumstances, after these things, what things? What things is he talking about? Well, probably the things in chapter 5, wouldn't you say? That's very good, Dale. (laughs) You can stay up here in the front. After these things, John chapter 5, the things in John 5. Well, where was Jesus in John chapter 5? He was in Jerusalem, right? You can look on the overhead and you'll see that. (laughs) He was in Jerusalem. Because it was time now to take it to the religious hierarchy and tell them who he was. So he walked into that... Pulled the Bethesda and he picked out the worst cripple he could find and he healed him when on the Sabbath day. And if that wasn't enough, he said, hey, kick up your bed and walk. It was in your face, the religious hierarchy. It was time for controversy. It was time to declare who he was. And what did you say? Hey, he did this on the Sabbath and he's making himself equal with God. And Jesus said, good answer. And then began this discourse, this incredible testimony, this courtroom scene where he brought in his own miracles, John the Baptist, Father's Word. And he declared who he was. And he says, the problem, Jews, is you read the book and you don't know the God that gave it to you. It's all knowledge to you. Knowledge so you can impress people and walk around as a Pharisee. And the proof is you don't know me. I'm the one. I'm God. That's what the whole book points to is to me. You don't even know me. All took place in Jerusalem. What do you read here in verse 1? Where is Jesus now? He is in Galilee. What does that tell us? That between John chapter 5, verse 47, and John chapter 6, verse 1, a period of time has elapsed, right? How much time? Well, look at verse 4. We're dealing here with a, what festival? A Passover feast. Now, that's very important. You remember we said that John is the gospel to the believer. Matthew, Luke, and Mark They record lots of miracles, lots of events, because it's good news to the lost. 
But John's a different book. He writes to those aorist tense verb who have already believed that you might really believe. He takes us to the heights of what we have. It's the good news to the believer. In other words, you might have heard about it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but you don't know how good you got it. Let me tell you how good you got it. And so, John doesn't record a lot of the things that the other Gospels record. There's no parables, there's no resurrection account, there's no, no uh, baptism account. He doesn't need that. He's talking about us in our walk with God. I remember Mark Malding, you might have met him. He was here, ministered the Word several weeks ago. Mark said he did a conference down in deep Alabama and there was this guy from the backwoods and he was telling him all that we are and all that we have in Christ and the, the old pastor came up to him and he says, well, he says, I knew I was saved. He says, I just didn't know I was that saved. <laughs> that's John. That's what the Gospel of John's all about. Well, John then, since he doesn't record a lot of that stuff, he records the key things that are going to help the believer to understand what Jesus Christ has done for us and wants to do for us. So he omits a lot of that. And one of the key things that he does is he uses the Passover as a dating tool to form his chronology. And we are going to see four Passovers in the Gospel of John, which will give us then three years of ministry. See that on the overhead? We saw the first Passover in John chapter 2 when Jesus began his ministry. And he walked in, he cleansed the temple. And that was the beginning of his ministry. We said from John chapter 5, although it's not explicitly stated, that we believe that this was the second Passover. When he healed the paralytic and began that discourse of his deity. This then would be John chapter 6, the third Passover. Where he's going to feed the 5,000. There will be a fourth Passover in John 13 when the crucifixion comes. And he becomes the new Passover lamb. So four different Passovers. Three years of public ministry. This is where we are now in John 6. That tells us that a year has passed from the events in John 5. That tells us that two-thirds of his ministry is now complete. It tells us that we are only one year away from him being crucified. And things are going to pick up in intensity from here on out in the Gospel of John. I mean, we're, we're going to go into fifth gear and it's just going to stay there. Now, here's the incredible thing that I, I see in this. John has seen fit to neglect this entire year of ministry. All he does is record the result. And the result is in chapter 6, verse 2. He just says, after these things, we find Jesus in Galilee. And here's the result of that ministry, that one missing year that he doesn't talk about. A great multitude is following him. That's the result. You say, well, why would a great multitude be following him? Well, three key words. They are following, you might want to circle them, because they saw, that's the second word, the miracles which he did, that's the third word. All John does is record the result. And he says there's a great crowd. Why? They were following. They saw what he did. Every one of those verbs is an imperfect tense. Imperfect tense denotes continuous action. The translators should have done this for us. They haven't. It's this. They kept on following him. 
because they continually saw what he habitually did, working these miracles. Do you see what's going on in the missing chapters, in the missing events? Jesus is going around going, get up and walk, be healed, demon come out, rise from the dead, bang, 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 like that. In John chapter 20, John says, if the miracles were put down in books, you couldn't write enough books. We get the picture sometimes that there's this, every once in a while, Jesus does something. That's not what was happening. He was going around just like this, and the books can't contain what he did. What happens when that goes on in our society? What happens to the crowds? Big time crowds. I mean, crowds go around faith healers today. Even if they're charlatans. In the hope they'll get better. John has seen fit to bypass all of that ministry. Do you know, you've got to understand this. Do you know what this covers? I wrote this down for you. You've got to see this. This covers the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 through verse 14. All left out. What happened in Matthew 5 through 7? Sermon on the Mount. What happened when he finished teaching? They marveled. This guy has authority. This, this neglects the uh, raising of Peter's mother-in-law from the dead. It takes away the healing of the demoniacs in, in Matthew 8. The centurion's servant, the paralytics, the sending out of the twelve, the parables, it's all left out. Because John is not so much concerned about what happened as he is concerned that we understand what happened and let it affect our lives. You understand that? That's heavy. So all he does is record the result. And the result is that thousands and thousands of people are flocking to hear him. Only look at the verse in John 6. Why are they following him? Verse 2. Because they heard his words, right? What's it say? Because they saw his works. You hear that? This crowd is not following him because he has the words of life. Why are they following him? He does good stuff. Do you realize then that this crowd is not a group of seekers? What they are is a crowd of consumers. That's what they are. They are a crowd of consumers. They want Jesus only for what they can get out of him. They were touched by him. They had relatives touched by him. But they weren't going after him to touch him by embracing him. They were only going after him for more, for more, for more. To get what they could get. And basically they disregarded everything he said. Do you realize that later in John chapter 6, I'll give you this ahead of time, they're going to try to make him king? Why? Because they recognized his deity? Uh-uh. They want him to lead them in a revolt and kick Rome out. They don't recognize his kingship. They just want what they can get out of him. Now we got the guy who can lead us and get these Romans out of here. Get our life back the way we like it. It's the nature of humanity. One writer put it this way. This is a heavy statement. The miracles drew many after him, but not many to him. Lots of people following, but not a lot of people receiving, worshiping, adoring, praising. 
Just a crowd of consumers. I tried to think of a way that I could help us to understand this. Christmas, the day before Christmas, Cortana Mall. How many of you have ever been there on the day before Christmas? You're a late shopper, George? See, Janie answers that one. Yep. What's it like there on the day before Christmas? Pandemonium. Crazy place. Can't find a parking place. Bumping into people everywhere you go. It's a zoo. All right, you get that picture? What would, now let's, let's take it a little further. All those people that are there, they're all there to get something from you. Get the idea? That's what Jesus is going through. So what happens if you look at verse 3, we find him up on a mountain by himself. Well, what happened here? Well, when you go over to Matthew 14, which we'll do next week, we're going to see that Jesus has just heard the news that John the Baptist has died. That grieved him. The disciples have just come back from being sent out and they've got lots to tell him, but there's so many people around it says they can't even get something to eat. Couldn't even eat. There were so many people all around him like leeches. Just sucking the life out of him. So Jesus heads out in the boat and says, I'm going to go get some solitude. And this is basically what he did. He headed over there. About a one-hour journey by boat. He went up in a mountain to spend some quiet time with his disciples. Isn't that wonderful? He's our example. Sometimes we need to get away and just spend some time with just him and not feel guilty about it. So I'll be taking the next eight months off and uh, set up on that one, huh? What do you suppose this old crowd's going to do, though, when they uh, see Jesus get in the boat and leave? What do consumers do when there's a good deal? They go to the good deals, don't they? See, in the valley, there's this place called Encino, where we grew up, you know. And you could hear them. Such a deal. You know? you got to go to the good deal. And this is what they would do. Well, funny thing, this is the Passover, right? Where are all Jews supposed to go at the Passover? Jerusalem. So all these crowds are going to be coming from the north going this way, towards Jerusalem. What's the crowd that's following Jesus doing? They're going the opposite direction. Now, what do consumers do when they see crowds going the opposite way they're supposed to be going, say, they're getting something we're not. Where are you people going? Well, we're going to see Jesus, miracle worker, meets all our needs, raises the dead, heals the sick. What do all the people heading towards Jerusalem do? Yeah, they do this. See? And so by the time this three-hour journey is over, you've got a mob. And if you look at chapter 6, verse 3, Jesus is up on the mountain with his disciples. And in verse 5, he lifts up his eyes and he sees this great mob coming towards them. And at that point, things happen fast. But if you want to know what happens, you've got to come back next week. And to be honest with you, next week is just going to be introduction too. As we just lay the foundation and then when it opens up, it is incredible what our Jesus did to his 12 disciples. Now, of course, we're not done yet. 
Because we got to apply this. First of all, to a non-Christian. Look, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, look what these people did. They wanted physical relief instead of spiritual relief. They wanted what he could do for them instead of having a restored relationship with God, which is really the reason why he came. Now, I don't know what it is that's keeping you from receiving Christ. But I want to talk to you for just a minute about the character of our God. Jesus knows the heart of people, right? In John chapter 2, when he did all the miracles and the people believed on him, he said, I don't believe in you. Because he knew their hearts. In John chapter 5, what did he tell them? You people are claiming to love God. I know your heart. You don't love God. What do you suppose he knows here in chapter 6? That they're only coming after him to get their tummies full. Right? You know what he's going to do? He's going to feed them anyway. They're coming to him to get what they can get from him. They're not coming to be kind. They're not coming to love him. They're not coming to adore him and to praise him. But what's he going to do? He's going to meet their needs anyway. Wow. How can you say no to a God like that? That is the awesome character of our God. This is the greatest struggle, I think, for all, everybody. Is that we struggle with receiving the love of God. I had a person this week I was talking with. They said, I, I just can't. How could God love me? And I had to tell him, you're so full of pride. How can you say I'm full of pride when I'm saying God couldn't love a person like me? That's because your eyes are fixed on you instead of on him. That's your problem. He loves you not because of who you are, but because of who He is. He is agape. That's what He is. And He loves you independent of what you've done. He died for you while you were yet an enemy. Right? See, even though we got this long haul, I can still see in the back. Debbie Frazier, let me ask you a question. What did you do for God when He died for you 2,000 years ago? Absolutely nothing. How do you say no to a God like that? You've got a real problem, person. Your problem is you're, you, you are in sin. You are in Adam. If he loves you enough, he'll deal with your sin. In fact, he already has. You just need to receive what he's done. You need to receive Jesus. What about a Christian? Well, Christians, we need a new overhead for you. Does life still have its impossibilities? Yeah. You face them? Yeah, you sure do. But Jesus is sufficient, believer. Jesus is sufficient. What does Philippians 4 say? My God shall supply all your needs in Christ Jesus. Not all, but but this one. I just know if Paul had been here today, he wouldn't have been able to write that. My circumstances differ. Mm -mm. He meets all your needs. Now, here's the problem. That is a very easy thing to say. It is quite another thing to do. It is so easy for you and I to say, trust the Lord, trust the Lord, but that is a very difficult thing to do. You know why? Because you're born in Adam. And I'm born in Adam. And we have been programmed to be independent. When we were growing up and something happened in our life we didn't like, we brought all our resources into play to change it. And we used our mind, our will, our strength, and we didn't even give a hoot or a thought about God. And we have been programmed to live independent of God. 
right? But I'll tell you what, growing up in this U.S. of A., that is doubled. Because the greatest problem of a society in affluence is they live independent of God. There's no need. Jerry, you hungry? No, you're not? <laughs> you're not supposed to say things like that. They just broke my train of thought. Frank, are you hungry? You're starving. I like you, Frank. But all you got to do is what? Get me to shut up so you can go to a restaurant or something, right? But if you're hungry, all you got to do is go to the refrigerator. If you're sick, Scott, what do you do? Call a doctor. Any thought of God in either of those things? The greatest threat to an affluent society is that we will live independent of God. We just don't have a need. And so we don't ask. Let me give you some food for thought. Genesis 18:19, Abraham. Destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. What did Abraham say? Hey God, if there's 50 righteous, will you spare the city? Hey, if there's 40, will you spare the city? If there's 30, will you spare? If there's 20, if there's 10, will you spare the city? And what did God do every time he asked? Kept on asking. Have you ever wondered what would have happened if Abraham hadn't stopped asking? Do you realize that? Abraham stopped asking. Why? And God, every time he asked, provided. Ooh, I know that's dangerous ground to tread on. You think about that. We have a God who longs to meet our needs. We have a God who longs to respond. And here's the prayer. As I learned, help me to learn to depend on you. There's nobody who's learned it. So as I learn to depend on you, Father, help me not to depend on me. And help me not to depend on others. i got news for you. You depend on others, they'll let you down. <coughs> they will not have pure motives. They will not be truthful with you. They will not be there when you call them. And they will fail you. There is only one in this world that you and I can depend on 100% of the time, 24 hours a day, every day. And it's Jesus. And I'll tell you what, that's the hardest lesson for you and I to learn. Leela Faber told a story several years ago, and he nailed it. Several years ago, in the early 80s, there were a bunch of wild Mustang ponies from the Indian days loose up in the state of Wyoming. There are no natural enemies there for them anymore. The mountain lion, the wolf, they're gone. So what happened to these ponies is they multiplied. They multiplied to the point where there were too many of them and they were starving each other out. And they were starving the deer out. There just wasn't enough food. They were out there wild and free, but they were their own worst enemy and they were killing themselves and didn't even know it. Fish and Game Department said, we can't have this. It's not humane. We're going to thin out the herd. We're going to fly over in helicopters and shoot them. What did the animal rights activists do? <laughs> you can't do that. Time out. So they came up with an alternative plan. We'll hire cowboys and round up these ponies and adopt them out. And families can come and get wild little ponies. So the little family comes up to adopt a little pony. And they want to give it apples and sugar cubes and pet it and rub it and love on it and all that kind of stuff. But the little pony, he's wild. He's not going to let them do that. So what has to happen to the ponies? 
They have to be broken. So the cowboy comes out and he puts a bit in the pony's mouth. Well, the pony's never had a bit in his mouth. Stop this. Why are you doing this to me? I don't like this. Take it out. And then the cowboy puts a, the saddle on and he tightens the cinch and the cinch cuts into the flesh. And the little pony says, why are you hurting me? Leave me alone. I was happy out there on the plains. This is not fair. Stop it. And then the cowboy gets up on the horse's back. He's never had a weight on his back. What's he trying to do with the weight on his back? He tries to get rid of it. So he bucks and he fights and he kicks. Because he doesn't like it. But the cowboy's good. He knows every trick in the book. And so the horse just quits. Is he broken? No. He's just in a horsey depression. <laughs> See? He's, he's got this impossible circumstance and he just can't handle it. But he's not broken. So the old cowboy takes his spurs and kicks them into the horse's side and gets the old horse bucking again. Do you realize that horse has two choices? He can either surrender his will and yield or he'll die in the struggle. Well, this little pony breaks. If you know anything about horses, when a horse is broken, he's broken for life. You might need to show him the whip once in a while, but they're broken for life. Well, now the family can take the little pony home and Love it and groom it and give it sugar cubes and apples and ride with it and just be everything they always wanted to be to that little pony, but the little pony wouldn't let them. I trust you see the analogy. We were those wild little ponies out on the plain. We were our own worst enemy. We were dying out there. God in His marvelous grace rounded us out and put us in His corral called Salvation. And he wanted to be everything to us, but the problem is most of us were still too wild and we wouldn't let him be everything he wanted to be. He wanted to give us his love, but we'll earn it. He wanted to give us his strength, but in our pride we say, oh no, we'll, we'll handle this one, Lord. You, you hang around for the more difficult one. And we would not let him be everything he wanted to be to us. What has to happen to little wild ponies like that? They've got to be broken. And I'm going to tell you this going in. That is John chapter 6. Our Jesus is going to break his disciples. He's going to strip every resource they've got. Because he's angry? Because he's ticked off they're not trusting him? No. Because he knows they're forfeiting the blessing of depending on him. And to drive it home, he's going to give him an overflowing basket full. Our Father's message to all of us from John 6 is this. I want to be everything to you if you'll just let me be everything. But the only way he'll be everything to us is if we are nothing. And that's not a very popular message. I hope you'll stick around. Father, Open our eyes, please, to John 6. May we not just see the miracle, may we see the meaning behind it. May we not just see the dunamis, may we see the semeon. We want every bit of Jesus that Jesus offers us. And Father, we in turn want to offer you everything that's ours so that you can break it Take it away. 
so that we'll have only you. And then in your marvelous grace, we'll find that you are all we ever need. Teach us all, our Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. College kids, all you guys from Campus Crusade, no? I know that analogy didn't apply to you, when all you got to do is go to the fridge, because you're starving college students, right? Nothing in the fridge. Well, we're going to have a, a pizza lunch for you guys over at the Platners. Uh, if you need directions, see any of the Campus Crusade staffers that are here. But uh, we'd love to have you over there. We're just going to have a Q&A type session with you guys today and have some fun and uh, it'll be a great time. So over at Eric and Carrie's about <laughs> 12.15. So uh, we'll see you over there. The rest of you, please uh, pray for the people in Romania and be the church. <laughs>